4: Please stand clear. The doors are closing.
3: This week's California Report magazine starts on the LA Metro. Gracias por viajar en metro. We're on the Exposition Line, which is the newest metro line here in LA. And it did something that's never been done before. It connects affluent areas near the beach to more working-class neighborhoods inland.
5: Now arriving, Jefferson, USC Station.
3: Near the end of the line, USC an elite university right in the middle of a neighborhood that's been struggling with poverty for decades. Today, we're teaming up with student journalists from the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism to bring us profiles of people challenging inequality in one of California's most divided cities. We're gonna meet a nine-year-old activist who took on big oil after kids in her neighborhood kept getting sick.
0: That's why I fight. Kids read about urban oil drilling in history
3: books and think it was ridiculous. And a caregiver who spends her nights cleaning bedpans and her days fighting for fair pay. If we allow these people
6: to pay us below the minimum wage, we are actually encouraging
3: modern-day slavery. Plus, confronting machismo in the world of mariachi music.
7: I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it was like an all-gay mariachi? They're like, can
3: you do that? I'm Sasha Koka and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. So I just got off the metro and I'm here at the campus at USC with its impressive brick buildings. I'm standing in front of a pretty large and majestic fountain with water flowing down it. And there's a tour going by. I got into USC. I applied to be a tour guide my freshman year. Uh, But once I kind of figured out that I wanted to apply to USC, the application process was stressful. Our first student story comes from from reporter Claire Heddles, and it starts just a few blocks away from here. She's going to introduce us to a teenager who's made a name for herself as an activist. Her transformation began when she was just nine years old, after she learned about oil drilling right across the street from her home.
5: Just steps away from the eight lanes of the 110 freeway, Nayeli Kobo looks up at a red-brown building with a small dove emblazoned on each side of the double doors. The dove signify hope, and that's something I've always
0: like held really close to heart, and I loved living here, yeah.
5: <laughs> Nayeli is 18 now. She spent her childhood in this apartment building in South LA. It was a
0: community of immigrants, people of color, low-income community. If my mom couldn't pick me up from school, I knew that another neighbor would pick me up.
5: Directly across the street is a grassy lawn her family liked to picnic in. We'd have like family barbecues there, or like picnics there on the green spot before we knew Alanco was an oil well. She's talking about a company called Alanco. If you look closer, beyond the trees at that picnic spot, there's a solid metal gate. Behind it, an oil drilling site that spurred Nayeli's activism starting when she was just nine years old.
0: I lived exactly 30 feet away and I went to school just two blocks from
8: here. Nayeli's mom, Monique Uriarte, would walk her to Catholic school in the morning. One day, suddenly Nayeli started with nosebleed and headaches, Myself experienced with headaches. My family' health was decreasing for no reason.
5: And they weren't the only neighbors with nosebleeds and headaches. The community filed more than 230 complaints about the drill site to the local air quality agency.
8: Our common conversation was like, oh, how are you? Oh, I need to run to emergency room because my son has a spontaneous bleed. Oh, mine too. Our kids or ourselves are frequently getting sick. And we start like, what's wrong? Nayeli says she
5: spent a lot of sleepless nights laying in her mom's lap.
8: We just cried together because
0: I was in so much pain, and the doctors would just say, I don't know what's wrong with you, and we didn't have another $30, $50 to $100 to spend to get that same response anymore.
5: And the doctor tells them, oh, you have a rash, here is a cream. Oh, you have asthma, here is an inhaler. Nayeli and her mom uh, were almost giving up on the health system. That's Dr. Felix Aguilar. He was one of the first doctors to connect Nayeli's symptoms to the nearby oil drilling. He's part of Physicians for Social Responsibility. The group's L.A. director, Marta Dina-Arguello, has been an activist here for 45 years. She taught Nayeli and other kids in the neighborhood about community organizing.
7: I mean, I became an activist at Nayeli's age, right? So Nayeli and I talk about that a lot, right? And, And, you know, that there will always be this need for young folk to take up a battle because they've been impacted.
5: Nayeli took up this battle at her school when she was in third grade.
0: People did have all kinds of symptoms like stomach pains or headaches or nosebleeds even. And I remember like the teachers like saying oh I don't know what it is and I had to say I know and I'd like educate the entire classroom about oil drilling.
5: Nayeli's mom Monique says she didn't set out to raise a young activist. She just taught her daughter she needed to be an important part of the community she belongs to.
8: They need to be useful to the society. You, you need to do something about it.
5: And she did. When Nayeli was 14, she and her peers sued Los Angeles for environmental racism in the way the city granted permits for oil drilling. The kids got a hold of a map of drill sites in LA. Five were in neighborhoods of color, and only two were in majority white neighborhoods. It was
0: for our health, for our community's health, for future generations, because it's a basic human right to breathe
5: air, and it's not okay that we're being denied that. The city of L.A. adopted stricter requirements for permitting and settled the suit. For Monique, Marta, and Nayeli, this was a huge win. Later that year, Allenco suspended its drilling operations in South L.A.,
8: it was amazing. We received a letter where Alenko is shutting down. I was crying, I was crying. We were so happy. I think that was a transformational moment for their entire lives. Every young person
7: that was part of the lawsuit will be changed. That marks you. We were
0: talking about it, and one of our leaders said, this is something kids are going to read about in history books. That's why I fight. I fight so Kids read about urban oil drilling in history books and think it was ridiculous. I fight so no other kid has to go through what I went through growing up.
5: Now, in her neighborhood, there are no sounds of oil drilling. It's been almost a decade since nine-year-old Nayeli began her fight to stop Allen Co. But the company is now petitioning to reopen the drill site. Nayeli Kobo is concerned. She hopes the city stops them this time. She's heading to college but she knows a new generation of kids may need to pick up the fight that shaped her childhood. For the California Report, I'm Claire Heddles in South Los Angeles.
3: Violets, trumpets, guitars, those are the traditional sounds of mariachi music, along with songs about love and heartbreak. Now, as USC student reporter Jesús Alvarado tells us, a man here in Los Angeles is creating a space for queer mariachi musicians. How you're
7: holding back is fine. so I want to sound
2: more next. It's time for rehearsal, and Carlos Samaniego is tuning his violin. He's in the living room of a friend's house in East LA he's wearing charro pants, his slick black hair is parted to the side, and on top of it sits a velvet sombrero. Carlos is the director of Mariachi Arcoiris de Los Angeles, or Mariachi Rainbow, the first of its kind in the world.
7: I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it was like an all-gay mariachi? They're like, can you do that? So then I said, oh crap, what did I just say? Carlos
2: grew up in Los Angeles, surrounded by mariachi music. He listened to hit artists like Lucha Villa, Juan Gabriel, and Rocio Durcal. He also grew up a closeted gay teenager in the 90s.
1: I take pride in kind of kicking him out of the closet, yeah.
2: That's his best friend, Natalia Melendez. She's tall, has blonde hair, and a Colgate welcoming smile.
1: I think it's important for everybody in this world to have an ally, whether it be family or friend.
2: Natalia met Carlos when they were teenagers, and they both played music with Maria Voz in Mexico. She helped him come to terms with his sexuality. She was on her own journey as a trans woman. Eventually, Carlos went off to Cal State LA, where he invited Natalia to help plan the campus's annual pride event.
7: One of the events was going to be a mock wedding in protest to the fact that same-sex marriage was illegal. They all knew that I played mariachi, and they said, why don't we get a mariachi since this is a very Latino campus, mariachi is always at a wedding.
2: In fact, the idea of an all-queer mariachi band caught the attention of the manager of Club Temple, a gay Latino club in Hollywood.
7: (laughs) He offered us a job right on the spot. So then we continued having mariachi arcoiris after that for a few months. I was really young and inexperienced and as a director, so it died out after a few months.
2: At the time, Carlos and Natalia thought Maria Chiarcoides had come to an end. They both graduated college. Natalia went to work in a lab drawing blood samples.
7: <laughs>
2: Carlos, on the other hand, moved to Italy and pursued a career as an opera singer. Then to New York, where he played the violin with other mariachi bands but they didn't approve of him being out as a gay man.
7: The mariachi world is very machista. Our Mexican culture is very machista. You'll always hear comments like, oh, you know that, don't be a fag, or did you see that queer over there? I felt like, well, then I can't come out to them. But I also felt like it was unfair, you know, because they can talk about their girlfriends or about their wives. That's the exact
2: feeling that inspired Carlos to find his own tribe and recreate Mariachi Arcoides in 2014 after settling back in LA.
7: I needed to have a safe place for mariachi musicians that identify as LGBTQ+, to come together and rehearse and perform our music that we so much love, which is mariachi music, free of discrimination, free of bullying, free of being made fun of. You can be who you are here in this group. The group is open to anyone.
2: That's Natalia performing at Club Temple is the first person Carlos asked to join the rebirth of Mariachi Arcoiris. Today, she's the first transgender musician in Mariachi history.
1: It's like an outer body feeling for me. And I take it so strongly, and it just feels beyond me at times. I love my music, I love what I do, I'm trying to be a good role model. And just to know that I can give that to somebody, it means the world to me.
2: She gets messages from LGBTQ people living in rural Mexico who listen to her story and music on
1: YouTube.
2: People write in to tell her how much it means to them that a transgender woman can represent their community through her passion for music.
1: If we can transcend to Mexico and we can have that effect on people over there, regardless if we don't live in Mexico, it's allowing them to know, it's just giving them that little oomph of, hey, Maybe I can do it. Maybe there's hope.
2: Mariachi Arcoides started out with only five musicians, including Carlos and Natalia, but it's now expanded to 11. All of them queer, LA natives of Mexican descent. They recently put out their first album. But Carlos wants to take it a step further.
7: I want our mariachi to be international. You know, I want us to go and travel the world and perform everywhere and be on the same level as in terms of getting the shows that these big mariachis get. Like Mariachi Vargas, Mariachi Sol de Mexico, Mariachi Los Camperos. Because we're of that caliber, we still need to be more accepted within the mariachi world. But before they hit the international stage,
2: mariachi Arcuides will continue to play every Sunday night at Club Temple, where it all started as well as summer pride festivities in LA. For the California Report, I'm Jesus Alvarado in Los Angeles.
3: I'm Sasha Coca, and you're listening to the California Report Magazine, a special show from student journalists here at USC. They're bringing you profiles of people challenging inequality in Los Angeles. Now we're going to head about 10 miles south of this campus to meet another activist. She's a millennial, and she spent her college years preparing to be part of the corporate world. But then, as USC student reporter Ben Tran tells us, she gave all that up to start something that challenges the very idea of profit.
9: Like many kids who grew up in working-class immigrant families, Kateri Gutierrez felt a lot of pressure to get a good job.
10: My mom had to get welfare and food stamps, so I know what it's like to have to wait until the second of the month to go get your food stamps.
9: Kateri grew up helping her mom clean houses, then got a degree from UC Berkeley. She was thrilled when she landed a job as a manager working for Disney. But the fantasy of a high-power career at Disney soon faded away.
10: It was a constant having to prove myself, not only as a new employee, but as a how do you deserve to be a manager right out of college.
9: She found the structure too stifling, and as a woman of color, she often felt her ideas weren't taken seriously. So one day, Kateri decided to quit and come back home to Lynwood in South Los Angeles to pursue her lifelong vision.
10: This space was actually extremely dirty. It had old, like, grocery fridges. It used to be a shoe store and a cigarette store at some point. She transformed this space
9: into a worker cooperative, which means there are no bosses, and everyone who works here is an owner and can have a vote in how the company's run. At 23, she started a cafe called Collective Avenue Coffee, a business based on community, ownership, and sustainability, not profit. It's one of only a handful of worker co-ops in Los Angeles County. The cafe is in a pastel purple building in Southgate on a street filled with mom-and-pop shops, like a record store and a community theater.
10: We all work full-time jobs, full-time students, or work like two to three hustles while trying to maintain the space and keep it as active as possible.
9: Kattery's holding down another job as a substitute teacher. She's always rushing, as if on a perpetual time crunch. She's got dark circles under her eyes, but they still twinkle with zeal and determination.
10: Typical capitalism is, how do I survive? I think what, what's different about us is, how do we lift? I, I like to think of it this way. How do we lift as we climb? We can't afford to be selfish anymore.
9: That's the mantra guiding Kateri's ambitions.
0: On Saturday, you would
10: want me there like
9: at 7.30. She often spends her days discussing logistics and scheduling shifts easy. with her co-op partners. An hour?
3: Yeah. An hour
9: Since 2010, worker co-ops have seen a modest rise in the U.S., people of color and women make up over 60% of new worker co-op membership. Cattery says the model could provide a way for low-income communities to resist gentrification and create wealth.
10: When I was in high school, seeing the local shopping mall, Plaza Mexico, it's actually a really big staple in the area
9: a place where street musicians play, filled with clothing stores, nail salons, and restaurants catering to Linwood's Latino community.
10: When I found out that Plaza Mexico was not owned by Latinos, the question was, would the people who own Plaza Mexico and make money out of us as consumers, would they ever live in our communities? That was a follow-up question, like, who am I in this community?
9: Cattery wanted to prove that businesses can be more than profit-making entities that they could serve as a place to build community as well. Cattery's at a Friday night event on the outdoor patio of a local restaurant that collaborates with Collective Avenue Coffee. The music drowns out the sound of cars speeding along the nearby Century Highway. There's dancing, mingling, pop-up food stands, and raffles. Cattery's on the mic, welcoming everyone.
10: Again, I mean it when I say that I want us to create a fun space. We don't need to wait for corporations to come bring us um, something for us to hang out in, okay? We can create it ourselves.
9: After four years in business, her dream of running a co-op seemed to be coming true. But in late 2018, Collective Avenue hit a wall. Somebody in the co-op had mismanaged funds. The coffee shop was in danger of shutting down.
0: I broke down.
10: I had a legit anxiety attack at a liquor store in Albuquerque, just like shaking.
9: Stress was taking a toll on her health, and it's not surprising. Starting worker co-ops in the U.S. isn't easy, and even though they've been growing, there aren't a lot of models out there for how to make them work.
10: There's a big misconception that, oh, well, we're all in this together because we all want to like fight for worker rights together, but at the same time, like... Uh, once money gets involved, it, it can get um, it can get tricky.
9: Kateri wants to focus more on how to manage the business. She plans to go to graduate school to get her MBA and learn how to become a better administrator, how to write contracts, and navigate regulations.
10: In our communities, we need to be really comfortable with formalizing business, right? And so it's not just like, I'm sharing a really cool article, I'm woke. It's how do we do the day-to-day?
9: Meanwhile, Cattery's trying to relaunch Collective Avenue Coffee by holding a workshop she calls a co-op boot camp.
10: First of all, thank you all. Give yourselves a hand, put yourselves in the back for making up-
9: one of the presenters is Dr. Alvaro Carlos, a political science professor at Cal State
2: Long Beach. For me, I'm really excited about the work that Collective Avenue's been doing and trying to like grow as a business, as an organization.
9: He's been studying co-op development in California and has been following Collective Avenue since its inception.
2: People are looking for alternatives, and so it's become a little bit easier, a little bit more palatable, to show younger people alternative models that kind of make sense for a generation that's been basically like kept out of like the, the fruits of the American dream.
9: Kateri's part of that generation, and she's in it for the long haul, despite the 12-hour workdays, sleepless nights, and the fact that her co-op fell apart.
10: I like to think of the phrase, fail forward. Like, how much can we learn from this? And being open about failures and successes.
9: For now, Kateri still has to pay the bills and help her family. So she's working a day job at a nonprofit where she delivers fresh produce to convenience stores in food deserts around Los Angeles.
10: Vengo con y están para su
9: Collective Avenue Coffee is expected to reopen by the fall. Kateri Gutierrez says it'll still be a worker co-op based on social justice. But this time, she hopes it'll become a model to grow more co-ops in the city. For The California Report, I'm Ben Tran in Los Angeles.
3: And finally, we're going to meet someone who, like many low-wage immigrant workers here in LA, spends her days taking care of elderly folks, emptying bedpans, giving sponge baths. But as USC student reporter Rebecca Ressler tells us, this caregiver has a unique history, one that helped shape her into an activist, fighting for the rights of her fellow domestic workers.
4: It's 6.30 p.m. and Aleja Plaza, or Lee for short, is ready for her night shift. Mama,
6: when is your birthday? My birthday? Yes.
4: Lee works at a retirement community for people in the film industry. She's five foot two and sturdy. She can easily hoist the bedridden 96-year-old she's taking care of, who used to work in accounting for a major movie studio. Lee gently sets an oxygen mask on the woman's face, drapes a bright pink Minnie Mouse blanket over her legs. She's so tender with her patients. She sometimes calls them mom and dad.
6: Mother, deep breathing.
4: Lee's wearing lime green scrubs. She's 59 but looks much younger. Her eyes are drowsy, but you can see her dimples when she smiles wide, almost as if she's about to laugh. Lee moved here six years ago from the Philippines, where she was a dean at a large university. But then things fell apart. One of her students was raped by the son of the local mayor. Nobody did anything about it. So Lee organized a protest.
6: The newspapers came and interviewed me, and then he got mad and sent some people to threaten me.
4: One afternoon, Lee ran into the perpetrator. In the middle of their local market, he held a gun to her back and threatened her life.
6: You're only one 45 caliber bullet.
4: One bullet away from death. That week she left her job and family in the Philippines. She flew straight to LAX and was eventually granted political asylum in the US.
6: Did you eat good? What? Did you eat lunch? Did you eat lunch? Mm-hmm.
4: At first, Lee was embarrassed to admit she had to take up a job as a caregiver. Not anymore. I
6: realize that caregiving is a noble profession because these jobs makes all jobs possible. You cannot be a senator or a president of the United States if nobody will take care of your loved ones at home. Nobody will take care of the oldest.
4: After an exhausting night giving sponge baths and emptying bedpans, Lee doesn't go home to sleep. Instead, she spends a full day organizing other domestic workers at the Filipino Worker Center. Okay, time you breathing.
3: So, a roll call.
4: Lee leads workshops to teach other domestic workers what she had to learn the hard way what their rights are. If we allow these people
6: to pay us below the minimum wage, we are actually encouraging modern day slavery.
4: Lee's learned a lot since her first days on the job as a caregiver.
6: I had also bad experiences, like somebody hit you, somebody spit on you, somebody just contracted you to work only for one, and you ended up taking care of two. Plus, they ask you to take care of the cats, the dogs, the flowers, the garden, the swimming pool, to cook, to wash, and to do the laundry.
4: Now, Lee even leads other domestic workers on lobbying trips to the state capitol. So here are
6: the roles of the people that are... Going to Sacramento tomorrow? The
4: Filipino Workers' Center here in L.A. has teamed up with the California Coalition of Domestic Workers to organize this overnight bus trip to Sacramento. They're asking legislators for $5 million to educate Californians about a new Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights.
6: Noches, mi amiga, mi compañera.
4: Lee shepherds her colleagues onto the bus, where they're joined by other workers, mostly Spanish-speaking women. In front of the Capitol building, over a hundred domestic workers from all across the state are standing in one big circle.
6: Workers come together,
4: united, and so ready. Go! Workers come Everyone's together, arms are intertwined. As they let go, their interlaced circle becomes a mass of scattered hugs. Lee, clipboard in hand, leads her group into the Capitol building. She opens the door to a state senator's office, hushing her colleagues behind her. She directs the rest of the group to give their testimony, but saves her plea for last. We're not asking for paradise and heaven. We're just actually asking that our rights be enforced through education. As she leaves the Capitol, Lee's grinning. She's optimistic that legislators heard their message. 24 hours and two bus rides later, Lee's back in LA. Deep in conversation with her friends, she forgot to sleep on the bus. Not surprising for someone who works a 20-hour day. Time to work. I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic all the domestic workers get off the bus. Some are going to vacuum, scrub toilets, and take care of other people's children. Lee's headed straight to the retirement home to change more bedpans. For the California Report, I'm Rebecca Ressler in Los Angeles.
3: the California Report Magazine, your weekend storytelling show from the California Report. This episode was a collaboration with students here at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Special thanks to Sandy Tolan and Roxandra Guidi, who taught this semester's Advanced Radio Reporting class. You can listen to past episodes of the California Report Magazine if you subscribe to our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Peter Arcuni directed the show this week. Susie Racho is our producer. Our technical producer is C.O. Muller, with additional engineering from Rob Spade. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleone. And the California Reports editorial team also includes Asala Sanapur, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. Have a great holiday weekend. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic
6: Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural
3: world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems.